1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia has lost more tanks in Ukraine than France, Britain, and Germany possess combined. Armies will always need armored transport. But do the prevalence of drones and shoulder-fired missiles mean that tanks are becoming obsolete? And many of the Ukrainians who have taken up arms to defend their country are not professional soldiers. They're ordinary people, including the occasional pop star and songwriter, able to turn out a steady stream of rousing, darkly comic war anthems. But first, America's Central Bank increased its main interest rate by 0.75% yesterday, the largest increase since 1994. The Federal Reserve faces a tricky problem. How to curb soaring inflation without triggering a recession? That difficult calculus got even harder last week, when the latest figures revealed that prices for everything from food to cars to airline tickets to gasoline— are still rising.
2: So that's shocking. That's the most expensive that I ever paid for gas, ever.
1: And it's not just the Fed that's in a tough spot. Joe Biden has watched his popularity sag as Americans worry about the rising cost of living.
2: My administration is going to continue everything we can to lower the prices to the American people, and the Congress has to act, and they have been of late.
1: But is the Fed doing enough to combat rising prices?
2: Relative to a week ago, this rate increase is a huge surprise. Markets had widely expected just half a percentage point.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor.
2: But then expectations shifted quite dramatically earlier this week. So relative to a couple of days ago, this is exactly what was expected.
1: And so, Simon, what happened in the intervening week?
2: Well, I think we have to start by going back to the last Fed meeting and rate announcement in May, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, made quite clear that the Fed was going to stick to half percentage point increments in its rate increases. This was then something that was reiterated by multiple members of the Fed, uh, listeners to our sister podcast, Money Talks. I might have heard an interview that I did with James Buller, the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. He said he was very content with the plan to raise rates by half percentage point.
1: I don't know if I'd get as wrapped up in this issue. I think we have a good plan for now with these 50 basis point increases. So, Simon, what changed from all that?
2: Well, the big obvious thing that changed, and this is something that Chair Powell referred to several times, was that there was a series of inflation reports just in the last few days that made it look like the price pressures were much more substantial than the Fed had anticipated Uh, expectations of future inflation look to be getting higher as well.
3: When I offered that guidance uh, at the last meeting, I did say that it was subject to the economy performing about in line with expectations. We got the CPI data and also some data on inflation expectations uh, late last week. And we thought for a while and we thought, well, this is the appropriate thing to do. So then the question is, what do you do? And do you wait six weeks to do it at the next meeting? And I think the answer is that's not where we are with this. So we decided we needed to go ahead. And so we did.
1: Let's talk about the inflation figures that came out last week. How bad were they?
2: Right. So on Friday, the American government reported that the consumer price index in May was 8.6% higher than a year earlier. That was the fastest rate of annual inflation since 1981. Expectations had been for something in the low eights. Now, that might not sound like a huge difference, you know, between, say, 8.2, 8.3 expectations and the reality of 8.6. But I think the real concerning thing was that if you look at the month-on-month momentum, consumer prices just look to be accelerating quite alarmingly. So the increase in May relative to April was 1%. That was ahead of a 0.3% increase in April. And so it was just a, a sign that rather than inflation beginning to moderate, which is what the Fed had hoped might be happening now. uh, If anything, inflation looked to be accelerating.
1: What about expectation? How is that affecting the Fed's thinking?
2: As far as central bankers are concerned, expectations are the holy grail, if you will. I mean, they can't control a lot of things that feed into inflation. They can't control energy prices or global supply chains. But their reaction to price pressures do influence long-term views about inflation. And so, I think really one of the big concerning things for the Fed right now is not just that uh, prices are going up, but consumers' expectations of prices are going up quite a lot as well. Uh, There's a very closely watched survey published by the University of Michigan. It suggests that people expect inflation to average about 3.3% over the next 5 to 10 years. That's up from just 3% a month earlier. The, The Fed, central bankers around the world, are concerned that Inflation expectations are, to use their terminology, becoming unanchored. Their goal right now is to re-anchor expectations to ensure that there is greater price stability going forward.
1: So do you think this rate raise will be enough to do that, to start reining in prices? Well, by itself,
2: it's not going to be enough. And the Fed itself acknowledges that. The expectation is that rates right now are in a range between 1.5 and 1.7 percentage points. They believe rates will have to go above three percentage points before the end of this year. From the beginning of rate rises in this cycle in March through to the end of the calendar year, it'll be the sharpest single tightening in a calendar year since 1981. The totality of rate rises through this year into early next year, yes, they they probably will be enough to start raining in price increases.
1: And what about the Fed's credibility, a lot of the questions at the press conference focused on this last minute decision to raise rates by more than initially expected. Do you think this will have an influence on investors and on the Fed's ability to get inflation under control?
2: Well, I suppose you could look at credibility in two different dimensions. In one dimension there's the credibility of, do you stick to what you say you were going to do? In that respect, you could say the Fed has undermined its credibility, it clearly had a forecast that it was going to be raising rates by half percentage point, had led markets to believe that. It went higher than that. But there's another dimension, which is the Fed has to have credibility fighting inflation. And so there was a big upside surprise in the data in the past week. Uh, Chair Powell has said all along that the Fed has to be extremely nimble in responding to data. Well, when the data surprises on the upside, the Fed basically has to surprise on the upside as well. So I think it's effectively reinforced the impression for the markets that You know, it's important to pay attention to to what the Fed is saying, but it's much more important to pay attention to what the data is actually doing.
1: So how bad is the inflation problem in the U.S. compared with other countries?
2: It really is a global phenomenon right now. Consumer prices in Britain, they were up at an annual pace of 9% in April. From Germany to Australia, inflationary pressures are bubbling up. Even Japan, long mired in deflation, uh, is not entirely immune to all of this. It's clear that there are global factors driving up prices, and those are, you know, very obviously the big and worryingly rapid ascent uh, in food and energy prices, which to a large extent have been caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. Plus, of course, you still have continuing snags in global supply chains. Looking at America, it's clear that excessive demand has been part of the picture. There's roughly two jobs available for every one unemployed person in America. If you look at different measures of gross domestic product, it's well above trend, partly stemming from the incredible stimulus at the height of the pandemic and continuing through until last year. So, you know, that excessive demand is something that central banks and that the Fed in particular can address through their tightening. And that is what Chair Powell is trying
1: to do. So the risk to these rate increases, I suppose, Simon, is that they cool the economy to such an extent that it tips it into a recession. What's your view? What do you think Americans should fear more right now? Continued inflation or recession? Pretty much any
2: time the Fed raises rates aggressively, it leads to a recession a couple of quarters down the road. You know, equally, if you look at both how low the unemployment rate is in America right now and how high inflation is, any time that unemployment has been below 4% and inflation has been above 4%, as it currently is, A recession has invariably been the outcome as the Federal Reserve tries to get the economy back into balance. So it will be an incredible act of escape if the Fed is able to avoid a recession this time around. The better news is that there's reason to think that if there is a recession, it will be a relatively mild one. If you look at the Fed's current projections, it sees the unemployment rate going from roughly 3.5% now more than 4% as a result of its tightening. That does speak to the recession risk, but ultimately the biggest concern for the economy is that inflation is allowed to get out of control. At that point, the Fed is gonna have to tighten even more aggressively. So I think inflation still really is the big concern, and the hope is that the Fed is somehow able to take some of the heat out of prices without provoking an overly sharp slowdown in growth.
1: All right. Simon, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, John.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation partnering with bank of america gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter visit bank com slash banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do bank of america n.a copyright 2024
1: the war in ukraine has exposed the vulnerabilities of the russian army Not least, the way it uses tanks. Many have been captured. Others have been taken completely out of action.
3: Ukrainian soldiers are more certain of destroying their targets. The Russian T-90M tank being taken out north of Kharkiv. Its extra armour no match for Western-supplied anti-tank weapons, which are proving decisive. The
1: sheer scale of destruction has raised questions about whether the tank still has a role to play in modern
3: warfare. Russian tanks are getting absolutely mauled in Ukraine. They've lost over 700 tanks in this war. About half of those have been destroyed. Over 700 tanks is more than the tank fleets of Britain, France, and Germany combined. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. So anti-tank weapons have been incredibly successful in Ukraine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the tank as a military platform is obsolete. I still think there is a future for it.
1: So let's talk about those anti-tank weapons first. What are they and how have they been deployed in Ukraine?
3: Well, I think the war has really highlighted two potent threats to armor. One of them is the weapon that's perhaps the most famous weapon of this war, and that is the anti-tank guided missile. I think many of our listeners will have heard of the Javelin missile. Perhaps some of us may have heard of the British-Swedish N-Law. These are basically missiles that are shoulder-fired and can destroy a tank. Americans, British, Europeans have given Ukraine many, many thousands of these. And these aren't new. You know, we've known since the Yom Kippur War between Israel and the Arab states of 1973 that these things can do real damage to a tank. But modern anti-tank weapons have very good guidance systems. And I think the other important thing is the old kind of rockets, think of the bazooka of the Second World War and stuff like that. They would have struck the tank where the armor is pretty strong on the front. The new weapons can go up in the air and they plunge down. They're called top attack mode. And they strike the tank where the armor is weakest, which is on the top of the turret. So that's, I think, one of the novelties of what we're seeing unfold.
1: So that's one of them. What else are we seeing?
3: The other one, I think, is but it's now easier to attack stuff from the air, right? And that's just really the fact that armed drones have become ubiquitous. They've become cheaper, they've become simpler to use, they've become more accessible, in addition to that, we also see other kinds of drones. These are called loitering munitions. They're effectively kamikaze drones. And even some really basic things. If you think about the kind of quadcopter that you might have as a hobbyist to take photographs of you know, your your family parties or something, Ukraine's been using that kind of thing to drop Soviet-made anti-tank grenades onto tanks below. So essentially attacking tanks from the air using drones which you can fly cheaply, they're small, they're disposable in some ways. This is also a big challenge to the future of, of protecting tanks.
1: So these weapons have really laid waste to Russia's tank fleet. I wonder, though, does that success indicate something about the obsolescence of tanks and armored vehicles more broadly? Or is it specific to Russia, to this conflict?
3: I think that's the absolutely essential question. And what I would say is, John, I earlier talked about the 1973 war with Israel and the Arab states. Well, after that war, armies realized we've got to protect tanks. And you don't do it just by sending a tank into a sort of, you know, a busy urban area. You do something called combined arms warfare. The idea is each arm in the military compensates for the weaknesses of the other. So a tank has a big gun. It has heavy armor but a tank can't go into the woods on the side of the road and flush out all the little ambush squads carrying javelin missiles. A tank can't go into a warren of buildings in an urban area sweeping it free of threats. So the point that all armies learned from the 1970s, this isn't new, is that you have to do this stuff well. You have to use artillery to try and suppress those people who might be pointing anti-tank missiles at you. You have to use smoke screens to disguise where your tank is going. And What we have seen in Ukraine is that Russia has just completely bungled it. And so if you don't look after your tanks, of course, they're going to get mauled by these kind of forces.
1: So just to be clear, these are tactics that have been known for half a century, but Russia just
3: isn't using them? That's exactly right. These are tactics that go back even before the 1970s. You know, I mean, in some ways, you could say World War Two, in some ways, even before that. But Ultimately, what we saw, particularly in the first month of this conflict, was basically amateur hour when it came to Russian armored warfare. And that's also a kind of tactical failing. It's also a planning failure, right? When they were attacking Kiev, lots of the artillery that you would need to suppress those anti-tank forces, it was stuck at the back of these congested columns, these long convoys that we, we talked a lot about on this show a couple of months ago. That was a function of poor planning. So basically, as with so much of this campaign... It isn't about the technology. It isn't just about the platform. It's about how you use it. And Russian tactics have not shown the technology at its best.
1: Does all of this mean that the tank still has a role in combat these days? Or does it just face too many lethal threats? Is it designed for a different era of warfare?
3: John, I think to answer that, we have to sort of just take a moment to consider what's the tank actually for, right? What's it doing? Well, it's there to combine three things. Firepower, mobility... And protection, right? It has a big gun, it has traps and it can move, and it has heavy armor that can shield the people inside it and lead the way for infantry. You still need something that can do all of those things, right? You still have to have something that can punch through enemy defenses, that can withstand the guns of other tanks, that can exploit those breakthroughs and move rapidly behind enemy lines. Something has to do all that stuff. If the tank isn't doing it, something else has to do it. Uh, you know, maybe a kind of slightly lighter armored vehicle, which has less armor, a smaller gun, but is cheaper to build in bigger numbers. But you still need something to do that. The other thing to bear in mind is that there are also new ways to protect tanks. There's something called active protection systems. And this is a special kind of armor that effectively has little radars built in. And when it sees incoming rounds, it can detect those and explode outwards to counteract that. Now that's expensive, it's heavy, it isn't installed on a large number of tanks, the Russians barely have it in service. But it means that the defense is also improving.
1: And Shashank, there's a lot more about this in your piece on our website, which, which looks a bit different to what we'd normally see online,
3: right? We have an absolutely fantastic 3D model of a tank designed by our brilliant graphics team and interactive teams. So yes, this isn't our usual article. This is an absolutely brilliant piece of visual journalism, and I would encourage everyone to click on and read it.
1: Shashank, thanks very much for joining us.
3: <laughs> Thank you very much, John.
1: As the war in Ukraine grinds on, artists and music producers there are doing their bit by making songs that poke fun at Russia. These anthems are being played across the country, on the front lines, and some of them are even going viral online.
4: I was in Italy in a small village in the north of Tuscany, and I met a girl there who had recently left Ukraine. And she was playing this song and people were dancing to it.
1: Claire McHugh writes about culture for The Economist.
4: It had this massive beat. It was really energetic and very, very catchy lyrics. And the the song title is actually Don't Fuck with Ukraine. Don't Fuck with Ukraine. Don't Fuck with Ukraine. And it was actually written by Max Barsky, who is a big Ukrainian pop star
1: so tell us more about Max Barsky, who wrote
4: the song. Max normally sings much more upbeat, uncontroversial, feel-good songs. He performs in sequin outfits, and, you know, he's really a star. But when the war broke out in Ukraine, he, like lots of men in Ukraine, joined the army. And at the beginning, he told me that he just couldn't listen to music. He wasn't interested in making music. He just wanted to look after his family. And then within a week of war, he had released another song which was much slower, much more painful. You could really feel the sorrow and how hard it was. Lots of piano music, very emotive music video. But then he released Don't Fuck With Ukraine, and he told me that it was inspired by the soldiers around him and the power of the army.
3: When I signed to the military unit, I thought to myself, like, enough of tears. We are a strong nation. We're the strong people, so we have to resist, protect and fight. And that's how this new war anthem was born.
4: Another thing that's quite interesting about Max is that even though he, he does sometimes sing in English and the lyrics of this song, at least the chorus are in English, he used to sing in Russian and English because a lot of his fans are in Russia. And then since the invasion that has now changed.
3: 24th of
0: February changed everything and also uh, changed my perspective
4: on the music. He's not targeting Russian fans. He's not singing in Russian. So the war's changed not only the style of his music, but also his audience.
1: And so that's a big departure for him. How has the song been received?
4: I think people in Ukraine are really enjoying it, often watching it on TikTok or Telegram, which is a channel that a lot of people are getting their news from. And Daniel Marin, who produced this song with Max, he told me that he's getting messages from people saying that soldiers on the front line are listening to this song. So it's become this modern war anthem, and it lifts people up. And that's that's the point of wartime music, isn't it? To boost morale and keep people together. What I think is incredible when you listen to this song is the spirit of defiance that comes through so strongly.
1: Have you come across other war anthems like this?
4: Yes, there's plenty of them that are being written. Some of them are electronic, but another one that's less electronic is an upbeat folk tune that was written for the Ukrainian army by Taras Borovok, and it's called Bayraktar.
0: Bayraktar.
4: The name of the song is derived from the Turkish TB2 drone, which Ukraine has used to attack Russia during the war. And this song, it mocks Russia's military failures. And then another anthem that my friend's grandma is listening to in Ukraine. I mean, that just shows how far this song has spread. It's called Vova i Bashi Blat, and it's produced by Musli UR. It's a real two fingers up to the Kremlin. It's a sort of style of music where the producer splices a speech over um, a beat. So in this case, it's this very, very sweary speech by um, a president of a football club in central Ukraine and his speech in which he's saying to Volva, so that's a short term for Vladimir Zelensky, to unleash hell on Russia. But he's saying this in very colourful language.
1: And Claire you mentioned that these songs make fun of Russians and I wonder if that's part of the purpose of them in addition to being defiant they're being done to give people something to laugh about and to poke fun at the enemy really do you think that's possible
4: I think the the comedy element is really important for sure but it's comedy and patriotism combined and I think on one hand you've got this comic relief people have something to laugh about and they have a lightness during quite dark moments And they also show how people can remain united despite these daunting odds. Max Vasky's song, Don't Fuck With Ukraine, has that famous line, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. That is the chorus. And that in itself has become a rallying cry for Ukraine during the war. There are so many other songs that I haven't managed to speak about. These songs are doing the same thing. And they're kind of creating exactly what Vladimir Putin, you know, they're creating his worst nightmare of a strong united Ukraine.
1: All right, Claire, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you, John. It's good to chat.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit.